And welcome back to Everything Else. I'm your host, Nick Stewart. This is the second part of a two-part episode on Christian anarchism. And if you didn't hear last week, it is imperative that you do so. Uh, This is a direct continuation of last week's episode. I just cut it into two pieces. And it might be a little tough to drop in out of context. So go back and give that one a listen if you haven't yet. And if you had, enjoy. Uh, This episode is already uh, pretty long to begin with, so let's just get it going. One question to be raised regarding a passage like Romans 13 is um, what constitutes a governing authority? What is a government or um, a legitimate ruler? Um, That might seem obvious to you, but if you really try to define it, you're going to run into some logical problems. You know, most of us, if pressed, would define a government as a group of people who collect taxes in order to protect people and their property and fund various community projects. Now, some of you may already disagree with that last part. Some of you would stop at protection, say no community projects, and know that I agree with you. But we are very much in the minority, so I'm just going to stretch it out to community things like roads, utilities, libraries, stuff like that. The reality is that in order to enforce laws, you have to be authorized to use force or violence if you want to be more realistic. You have to be able to use violence against people who attempt to break those laws. And that violence can range from kicking someone off another person's property, or collecting money from a speeding ticket, collecting taxes, arresting people, putting people in jail. These are all things that that people say the government has to do, and they all require some level of violence or the threat of violence to accomplish. If I won't be locked in a cage, I'm not going to pay my taxes. Why would I? If there were no consequences, I wouldn't give, I wouldn't give in to them when they demand money from me. You know, if, if some homeless person says he's the, the emperor of America now and he wants my money, um, nothing's going to happen if I don't give in to that because he's not actually the emperor. But the only thing that really makes him not the emperor, the only reason he's not the emperor is because he doesn't have the force to back up his demands. If he did have the force to back up his demands, he pretty much would be the emperor. So there's kind of a spectrum there in regard to what you think government should or shouldn't do. Uh, But if you believe in government, you generally believe that they have the authority to use force and collect money to fund protection. And maybe you would add community things like roads in there. Um, So we have a vague idea of what a government is. Here's the problem. The only thing Romans 13 says about the function of government is to punish evildoers. 
So already our view of government goes above and beyond what the notorious chapter actually says. So when the question becomes, would anyone who did the things uh, we laid out as, as our definition of government be a government? I mean, would anyone who collected taxes and protected the community be a government? Why would one be a government and the other not be? Well, in some low-income areas where police are present but ineffective, uh, gangs do a lot of protecting in their communities. I'm not advocating for gangs, but I also know that nobody's going to uh, listen to that caveat, so I won't even waste my time making it. <laughs> Whatever. Um, you know, to deny that that ever happens anywhere is, is just silly. But um, they, they often enforce their territory against other gangs. Um, they take youth under their wings and provide a community for them. And however perverse that, that mentorship and that community uh, may be, um, you know, and don't lose sight of the fact that uh, for some people in those communities, uh, whatever the controlling gang is in that territory, it might include their son or their nephew. So not all the people in the community view the gang as, as something to be feared. Um, again, you know, in fact, in uh, New York, the, um, the movie Gangs of New York, the reason there were so many gangs is because it was such a dangerous area and there was no you know, very little police protection there. Everyone kind of had to join a gang in order to be protected. You know, the gangs would protect each other. And so that's why, you know, if you know that movie, you know what I'm talking about. Again, I'm not advocating for it, but if uh, a gang took money from the community, offered some level of protection against other gangs, and offered some kind of community for the youth to join, could we say that they are some form of government to that community? Why not? They probably deter the, the rival gangs better than the cops do sometimes. I don't know. Whitey Bulger is an interesting case. He is the famous organized crime boss from Boston, and Jack Nicholson's character in The Departed is based on him. Um, talking a lot about movies, really good movies. This, this should probably just be a movie podcast. Um, he was an informant in the FBI, and he used that position to, to get away with a lot of crime. But he also used it to rat on his rival drug dealers so that he could conquer more of the territory. That's interesting, right? He was dealing drugs himself, but he did a lot to get other dealers off the streets. Uh, that's weird. He, uh, he also had strict rules for the dealers in his community, such as not selling to kids, not selling PCP. And if you broke those rules, you'd find yourself on the wrong end of a tire iron, you know? And, and he literally was working with the government. So it's like, can we call the Winter Hill Gang some kind of government in Boston over the, I think, like, 70s and 80s was, like, his heyday. So if we define the government the way we did previously then a lot of unsavory organizations become our government. But what alternative do we have? Well, what Romans 13 actually says is that the governing authorities are appointed by God. Uh, some translations say ordained. So how do we define what's appointed slash ordained by God? Because that can mean two different things. That could mean ordained, the way David was ordained to be king of Israel, like specifically chosen by God, who spoke through a prophet and anointed David to be king. 
or it could mean ordained by God in the sense that in his providence, everything that happens is ordained by him. So what do we mean? Well, if you mean it in the former sense, there, there would have to be a prophet around to tell us which government was ordained and anointed by God. And this is easily understood if you're coming from my perspective, because I don't believe in modern day prophets. The Bible's finished, God has spoken, and he's not speaking anymore. So any idea that the founding fathers were anointed by God to create a Christian nation and the tradition has continued to this day, like all that is silly and weird to me. But I think, I think a lot of people think that way. I think a lot of people think if a government exists, then God has put it in charge. And that's true in the sense of his providence, but I think we naturally tend to think of it the other way too. Because we're taught these mythical stories about our government from the earliest age possible. You know, the first president never told a lie, and Abraham Lincoln wanted to free the slaves, and all of this kind of mythical stuff that isn't really what happened. But when we believe in this mythology of these like ministers sent from God to establish a Christian nation and they beat the British and they made us free, you know, we tend to read Romans 13 and see our government represented right away. But as we've already discussed, it's a little hard to define what a government is. I, I would actually define it as um, a group of people that subjugate a land and a people, um, you know. There are, there are things like the Nazi party that definitely were a government, but we would generally consider them illegitimate because they were so wicked. And there are also things that, that aren't really a government, like the Winter Hill Gang, but do a lot of the same stuff the government does. And they do serve some function in their community, not unlike a government. So on both sides, there are discrepancies in, in how we define a government. It's kind of like a continent, you know, like why is Australia its own continent, but not Greenland? No one knows. It just is what it is. Like there's no hard and fast definition for a continent by which we can judge whether something really is or isn't. You know, it sounds similar to the issue at hand. You know, you, you know it when you see it. But if you're forced to define it, you're going to end up inadvertently defining a lot of other things as continents as well that we don't really consider continents. So I think my point is well made. Point is, defining what a government is gets a little muddy. Uh, oh, I forgot. I didn't even bring up uh, what to think if the, if the government you live under and like pledge your allegiance to is uh, taken over by another government. Now what do you do? I guess you would have to pledge allegiance to the new government, but that would mean you were only conditionally loyal to the first one. <laughs> But if you don't pledge allegiance to the new government, then you're not obedient to the uh, governing authority. So what do you do? You know, <laughs> just the, the, the problems really, you know, pile up when you when you start to boil this this down. So let's pretend we don't have those kinds of logical problems. Let's say we have a, a government and in this country, it's a lot easier to point to an entity and say there, you know, that's the government. Like, uh, let's take the U.S. government. That's the one we live under. This might sound like a silly question, but what makes them legitimate? Now, I already know you. This is, this is going to sound like postmodern relativism mumbo jumbo to you. But hear me out, because sometimes these questions are so easy and simple that we go our whole lives without asking them. You know, we just accept what is and, and move on. So what makes a government legitimate? We've already covered two possibilities. They're anointed by God, which has a 
a litany of problems attached to it, um, including the fact that there are no modern day prophets to share that message. And the other that we've talked about is considering any and all rulers legitimate. And that would include Nazis, street gangs, dictators, any government that conquers your government. And I'll leave you to sort out those problems. Maybe those problems don't bother you. The way I see it, there are uh, three other possibilities that make a ruler legitimate. And the first is probably how most of us operate, even if we give lip service to another one. We mostly accept whatever government we're born under as the legitimate one. And that's why we would consider the governments of other countries as illegitimate. And I don't, I don't need to name names, but I know people who have gone to China as missionaries, and they don't hesitate to bring a suitcase full of Bibles because they're there to share the gospel. So is it illegal? Hell yeah. Does it matter? I'm yet to meet a single Christian who would even hesitate to answer that. Nobody thinks we have to obey the laws of other countries when it comes to sharing the gospel. And I think that's partly because we're from a different country and partly because we see sharing the gospel as paramount to the, the laws of that country. Now, the legitimizing factor most of us think of when we try to answer this question is democracy. A democratically elected government is legitimate because the majority of us agree to it. We the people. The government works for us. You don't actually think I'm going to accept that, do you? Come on. Keep trying. Um, it's, not, it's not we the people. You know, Murray Rothbard rightly pointed out that if democratically elected governments were actually run by the people, then the Holocaust was an act of suicide. Uh, majority rule doesn't make something moral or right. There could be a group of five of us, and if four of us vote yes to beat you up, does that make it right? No. Absolutely not. The reality you have to reckon with is that not only is majority rule not a definition of what's moral, but 49% or whatever number have to live under a government they don't consent to. So we mix democracy with a constitution. You know, finally, there's an objective standard to keep the government and the voters in check. Wrong again. We, we never agreed to the constitution. A bunch of ruling elites from 250 years ago agreed to the Constitution. The only people who are bound to the Constitution are the ones who take office and swear to uphold it, and they're the ones who defy the Constitution at every turn. Lysander Spooner said, um, I'm going to butcher it, but here's the paraphrase, um, the Constitution either got us the government that we have today, or it did nothing to prevent it. So the worst scenario, and I'm, I'm hoping you're way ahead of me on this one, uh, even worse, there, there really is only one corrupt state that masquerades as both Democrat and Republican, but are really all the same, and there's no real option between the two, and democracy is only an illusion. A wise man once said, no matter who you vote for, you get John McCain. There's a great book by uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe called uh, Democracy, the God That Failed, and I recommend that if you want to dive into that subject more. Now, I mentioned there were five ways of determining the legitimacy of the state, and we've listed four. Here's the fifth. No rulers are legitimate. It's weird, right? The way that just doesn't feel right. You know, but is it so wrong? Like, if Jesus is truly our king, and God's law is truly our authority, 
then is it so crazy to say that war criminals shouldn't be considered legitimate rulers? You know, consider now the immense amount of biblical data that is anti-government. The Tower of Babel, in which man collectivized and attempted to make a name for themselves, and there was, to quote it, there was no limit to what they would have been able to do. God stopped it. Confused their speech. God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. He defies a governing authority in order to free his people. Many generations later, the people of Israel, under uh, Samuel's leadership, beg to have a king. They want a king like all the other nations. God says that they've rejected him from being their king. Daniel is thrown into the lion's pit for uh, defying a king's immoral decree not to pray. I've been studying uh, Matthew, and there's quite a bit in there to comment on. Sorry. Sorry. On which to comment. I have to keep correcting myself if I want to break the habit. Uh, The devil tries to tempt Jesus by offering him all the kingdoms of the world, which heavily implies that he is in charge of all those kingdoms and can give that authority over to Jesus. Or at least he was in charge of them. Jesus tells his disciples that Gentile rulers lord their authority over their people, and their relationships with one another in the kingdom of God is not going to work that way. And Matthew holds um, two episodes involving taxation that are commonly brought up in this conversation, but I don't think the ultimate point of those uh, passages, either one, is uh, pro-tax. So in Matthew 22, when Jesus says, render unto Caesar, that's a very, you know, common one. Full context is, uh, we kind of talked about it already, but render the coins to Caesar because they're in his image and render people to God because they're in his image. So Caesar can mint all the coins he wants. He can tax all he wants, but he ultimately belongs to God and he is under God's authority. And then there's the episode uh, with the coin in the fish's mouth in chapter 17. Jesus tells Peter to pay the temple tax to avoid offending anybody. But he says the sons are free. And what he means by that is kings don't tax their sons. So the sons are free from the tax. It's a temple tax. They're talking about a temple tax. And since it's God's temple and they're God's sons, they are free from paying that tax but he tells Peter to go pay it anyway. And the most important thing to remember about that passage, if you remember nothing else, don't forget it, the entire episode proves that Jesus hadn't paid the tax. Because none of that conversation, or the fish, or anything, would have happened if Jesus had already paid the tax. They came to him in the first place because he hadn't paid it. And don't forget who the go-to example of of a sinner in the gospel books is, tax collectors, fellow Jews who teamed up with the empire to steal money from their brothers. That's the lowest of the low as far as, um, you know, the New Testament is concerned. So examples abound of anti-government sentiment in the Bible. I also would want to mention 1 Corinthians 15, where it says God will eventually destroy all, all the ruling authorities at the end. And then Revelation obviously has no shortage of God destroying empires or an empire, depending on how you read it. 
Uh, most of the storyline of the Bible is God defeating wicked kings and asserting himself as the one true king of his people, turning his people's hearts away from the idolatry that's inherent in every earthly kingdom and turning those hearts back to him. And so there's one last thing that I want to cover to make my point. And I think this, this I, I'm thinking this through. It's not fully fleshed out, but this is kind of where I'm leaning when it comes to the issue of, of government in the Bible. Um, slavery. Slavery, you say? Nick, you, you just got this podcast back up and running. Is it really the ideal time to get canceled? Well, I'm here to tell you, I think it's always a good day to get canceled. But no, I don't have anything good to say about slavery, and neither does the Bible. So, just to get that out of the way. There are uh, lots of rules for slave owners in the Bible about how they're supposed to treat their slaves. Um, you know, that much is true. Don't beat your slave to death. That's, that's a simple command. But uh, there isn't a single example of a pro-slavery statement in the Bible. And in fact, the abolitionist movement was largely driven by Christians who desired for all men to be free. But at the time the Bible was written, slavery was just a fact of life, which the Bible regulated but never, ever condoned. So, in fact, I'm going to read uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 21 through 23. That's the passage we went over at my church on Sunday. Um, this is Paul writing, the same man who wrote Romans 13. Keep that in mind. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who... Uh, he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. A couple of things to point out here. The most glaring admission is in verse 21. If you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. So obviously Paul's position is that between freedom and slavery, freedom is the better option. Then he says, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. That means ultimately, no matter who your earthly ruler is, you belong to Christ and not to them. I hope you've noticed how many times that theme has come up. And then it says, do not become bondservants of men. Well, doesn't that just sum it up? Don't become a slave. And if I were a, a careless exegete, I would apply that to earthly rulers as well. Um, like governments, because uh, living under a government is slavery by any meaningful definition. Uh, but I don't think that's what Paul's talking about, so I won't put words in his mouth. But most people take exception to the Bible's commands to obey earthly rulers. You know, the Bible itself has exceptions to it. Practically everyone in the New Testament breaks the law by preaching the gospel it obviously never tells us to sin just because someone commanded us to, and, and everyone can point to an example, like the Nazis, classic, where they would have disobeyed because the rulers were so evil. Well, the unfortunate truth is that the U.S. government is evil too. We've had way more time to commit atrocities than the Socialist Party of Germany ever had, and therefore our body count is much higher, you know, from the American Indians to the poor people in Yemen who... We continue to fund a war against to this very day and uh, all the Ukrainians who have died and will continue to die by the hands of the Russians because we backed them in the stupid war. 
Our rulers have as much blood on their hands as some of the most wicked dictatorships that have ever existed on the planet. So why would you defy the Nazis, but you won't defy them? And I'm not telling you to defy them, you know, so don't, don't mishear me. I'm not saying to break the law or stop paying your taxes. I'm saying, why do you give moral license to your government? Probably because you were born under this government. Ask yourself why you allow that double standard. Then we can really start to figure out what's worth our support as Christians, because that's a question none of us ask enough, you know, myself included. And it's high time we started. All right, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, this was a really fun episode. I've done a lot of episodes explaining libertarianism and uh, raging against the state, uh, but this is the first time I've really gotten into Romans 13. Uh, normally, typically, I've, I've dealt with the concept of the state being a false religion, um, and if you're interested in that subject, I uh, went through and found uh, all the episode numbers that pertain to that. Uh, if you want to check them out, that would be episodes uh, 15, 41, 60, and 69. And those are old episodes, man. Those are those are from the death of death days. So uh, that's that's all I got for this week. I'll be back next week with a new episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Who you gonna trust when the judge is so unjust and the jury must discuss? Say you don't look like What has been a journey and the lessons that you've learned are not as many as the prisoners burn. We don't need to run and hide. We won't be pushed up to the side. What's your plan for tomorrow? Are you a leader or will you follow? Are you a fighter or will you cower? It's our time to get the power. What's your plan for tomorrow? Tower, it's our time to tap out the power. What's your plan?